The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Matt Peterson, the Ideas Editor for Barron's. My guest today is Gregory Brew. Greg is a historian of oil and energy analyst at Eurasia Group. Uh, They're a political risk firm, and by the way, I used to work there too. Uh, Greg covers Iran and the geopolitics of energy. Welcome, Greg. Thanks so much, Matt. So we're going to start with oil and what's going on in the Middle East, because there's some news there. And then we'll broaden this out and we'll talk about other developments in the energy transition around electric vehicles, hydrogen and other things. There's a lot to get to. Uh, So to start, Greg, can you give us a rundown of what is driving oil markets right now? Sure. So the market has been a little baffling this year. I think that's a a consensus view. I don't think that's uh, controversial of me to say. For the first half of the year, it seemed like bearish indicators were getting a lot more attention than bullish indicators, right? You saw a series of OPEC plus production cuts trying to balance markets, trying to stabilize prices that regularly received a pretty muted response. You know, prices very frequently didn't budge very much. On the flip side, whenever there was bearish news, let's say out of China or the U.S., we would frequently see prices fall pretty dramatically. And I think for the first half of the year, there was a discouraged feeling among oil producers and among OPEC and among, you know, major oil companies that prices weren't really budging. They were sort of stuck in this mid to low 70s, uh, 70s range. That all started to change, I think, in uh, in July. And the, the impetus really was the Saudi voluntary cut of a million, an additional million barrels a day. The Saudis made that decision to try to move markets a little more. And we really started to see an impact of that in July. Prices started ticking up. There were other factors as well, right? I mean, the Chinese uh, recovery out of COVID lockdowns maybe hasn't been as bullish as some thought. But when you look at things like jet fuel, aviation fuel, there's been recovering demand there. There's been increasing consumption uh, across the board in other sectors. There's also been other positive indicators, you know, out of the United States. A few months ago, everyone was worried about a recession. Everyone was concentrating on interest rate hikes. There was fear that there was going to be a major crisis over the debt ceiling. A lot of that seems to have dissipated on the back of consistently strong U.S. economic performance, which has helped bolster oil prices, right? When major economies of the world do well, oil prices tend to to go up. Another factor was Russia. For the first half of the year, you kept seeing resilience. You kept seeing Russia producing more, I think, than many were expecting. That all started to change in May and June. You finally started to see a serious decline in Russian seaboard exports, and that helped support higher prices. So, you know, I think looking ahead for the second half of the year, the view at the beginning of 2023 was that we would see a tightening We would start to see demand exceeding supply. We would start to see inventory draws and we would start to see higher prices. And I think we are starting to see that. Indexes are moving out of the 70s into the 80s. And I think when we're looking at a general price level for the remainder of the year, I would expect to see something in the $85 to $90 a barrel range from here to the end of 2023. Now, absent exogenous shocks, right? Something unexpected. 
a major shutdown of production somewhere or some serious bad economic news out of China or the West, that could change the picture. But right now, the outlook from early 2023, a tightening market in the second half of the year is still looking pretty good. All right. So you you answered one of our listener uh, Jack's question, which is, are we going to get to 100 there? Uh, you're saying not quite. But let's talk about exogenous shocks. <laughs> <laughs> because we, we we may be witnessing one uh, building up uh, involving Iran here, right? There's been some news over the past 24 hours. AP and the Washington Post are both reporting that the United States is considering putting Marines on commercial ships transiting there. Uh, the idea would be, I guess, to ward off some kind of Iranian attack. But tell us what's going on here. Sure. I mean, whenever we talk about exogenous shocks to the oil market, Iran is often the first one to come up, right? They're sort of the regional troublemaker. Uh, we're always looking at to Iran for uh, surprising actions. And this, you know, this, this fits within that category. I would uh, caveat it slightly by saying, so the recent reports of the last day or two about the United States uh, thinking about or planning to put military personnel and commercial shipping in the Persian Gulf, this is still very much in the early stages. Right? There are a lot of legal, a lot of diplomatic hoops that the U.S. would have to jump through to actually carry this out. Um, and right now we haven't seen a ton of progress on that. This is still very much in the talking phase. That being said, though, the U.S. is responding to what they see as being a consistent Iranian threat to shipping in the Gulf, be it oil shipping, cargo shipping in general. Over the last few months, we've seen repeated attempts by Iran, some successful, some unsuccessful, to interdict oil tankers exiting the Straits of Hormuz. This is something they've done repeatedly in the past, but there does seem to be an escalation in Iranian behavior that warrants this, uh, this U.S. response. And it's sort of generally indicative of where we see U.S.-Iranian relations right now. You know, about a month and a half ago, there was a lot of reporting about uh, a new diplomatic uh, venture, an attempt to get the U.S. and Iran towards an informal understanding that would allow both sides to de-escalate tensions. Uh, but since that reporting dropped in June, we haven't seen a ton of evidence that any kind of de-escalation or any kind of informal understanding is really happening. If anything, things seem to be getting worse rather than getting better. Do you think that we are going back to, you're of course, you're a historian here. I'd love your historical perspective. Do you think we're going back to this moment, this era of the 70s and 80s where the U.S. was really policing shipping um, with an interest in protecting oil supplies. Is that where we're headed? Well, the comparisons that a lot of people are making are to the so-called tanker war of the 1980s, where the United States stepped in and started reflagging and escorting oil tankers in the Persian Gulf, getting them out of the region, making sure that there was a free flow of oil. But the context for that was the Iran-Iraq war. You know, Iran and Iraq went to war uh, in 1980, it was a war that engulfed uh, the region that affected the flow of oil supplies. And it really prompted the United States to increase its military presence in the Gulf. You know, before the 1980s, the U.S. didn't really have much of a military presence in the Gulf. So it was kind of, you know, responding to events as they emerged. Uh, the tanker war was pretty serious. Um, there was a lot of fire exchange on both sides. Uh, whenever the tanker war comes up, I always like to remind people about uh, Operation Praying Mantis which was the United States actually attacking and sinking a number of Iranian surface vessels, attacking a number of Iranian uh, platforms. So the fighting got pretty intense in the late 1980s. We're nowhere close to that now, right? Right now, it's a lot of saber rattling. Uh, the Iranians have fired on at least one oil tanker, uh, causing light damage, but not causing any casualties. 
the U.S. is stepping up its presence. It's adding more troops to the ground. It's deploying more uh, vessels, more aircraft. Um, so we're definitely seeing an escalation in tensions, uh, but it's nowhere near as bad as it was in the 1980s when you had U.S. warships running into mines. You had U.S. warships shooting down Iranian civilian aircraft. I mean, things were very bad at the end of the 1980s, and we're not quite there yet. How much of the difference now do you think is attributable to, you know, the change in the energy economy to the fact that we have, you know, U.S. production is, is much different than it was back then, that we have much greater renewable supply. Um, does that weigh into this at all? Or is it just, you know, the absence of a war in Iraq? I think it's part of it. I mean, one of the bigger, more complicated historical questions that I like to grapple with is really what has been the impact on the geopolitics of energy from the recovery of the United States as a major oil and gas producer? I mean, you turn the clock back 20 years uh, to the early 2000s or the late 1990s, and the U.S. really was dependent on Middle East oil. It depended on the flow of oil out of the Persian Gulf, not just for the global economy, but for its own economy. We were importing millions of barrels of, a day from Middle East producers. Now that's just not the case. You know, we produce a lot more for our own consumption. The United States exports a lot more energy than it did in the past. But that hasn't, at least in my view, it hasn't really affected the U.S. commitment to the security of the Persian Gulf, right? You see a lot of concern, particularly among uh, Gulf Arab states, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, etc. You see a lot of concern coming from those countries that the U.S. commitment to the Gulf isn't what it used to be that there's more waffling, that there's more, that there's less interest in the United States about Gulf security. But when you look at, you know, actual U.S. policy, when you look at the forces that the U.S. has deployed in the region, you know, it doesn't really uh, indicate a significant change. Right? The United States, I think, remains, uh, remains convinced that it needs to maintain a presence in the Persian Gulf to protect the free flow of oil, not just for its own security, but for the security of the international uh, energy economy. And I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. If anything, uh, this tit-for-tat exchange with Iran is bolstering the case for why the United States needs to needs to stay in the Persian Gulf. Right. The, the, the other piece here that we didn't haven't brought up yet is China's involvement in the region, right? I mean, this is what people will point to. They'll say that uh, you know, the United States has abandoned Saudi Arabia, which is a turning to China. Um, uh, they, China was involved in this deal that was announced earlier in the year between Saudi Arabia and Iran to somewhat reduce tensions. What, what do you make of all of that, those developments? Well, first, I would uh, emphasize the significance of the normalization. You know, Iran and Saudi Arabia coming together, uh, shaking hands, uh, attempting or starting to reopen embassies, restoring diplomatic ties, you know, improving the general state of relations in the Persian Gulf. This is all very important, right? You go back just a couple of years to 2019, and you had Iran launching missiles and drones at Saudi oil facilities, knocking out half of Saudi oil capacity. I mean, in September of 2019, the Al-Qaeda attack, this, like that was a significant escalation. That was a real indicator of how bad things had gotten as far as regional security. And I think the normalization between Saudi and Iran uh, indicates that both sides want to see a de-escalation of tensions. Both sides are concerned about their security. The China uh, element is very interesting. I mean, when China uh, emerged as the mediator or the interlocutor in the normalization agreement, it triggered uh, quite a lot of 
concern and a significant response, particularly in the West and in, in the United States, that this was evidence that China was becoming more involved in the region. Uh, and uh, as you mentioned, it sort of fit within this narrative uh, that the United States was pulling back, or the United States was withdrawing or becoming less involved or less concerned, and that China was, if you like, filling the vacuum. I think that's more of a rhetorical case, and it's more a case of the narrative getting ahead of reality. China still doesn't have a significant presence in the Gulf. It's becoming very interested in the region uh, as a source of energy. Uh, it's becoming somewhat more involved in regional affairs, regional diplomacy. Uh, but apart from acting as the mediator for that normalization agreement, China hasn't really taken significant extra steps in overseeing an improvement in Iranian and Saudi relations. If anything, China continues to be very wary of getting closer to Iran in particular. You know, it's signing major agreements with Saudi Arabia, major economic agreements. But as far as displacing the United States as a regional power um, or displacing U.S. influence, it's still very, very early to say that China is, uh, is playing that kind of role. And so I, I guess you don't read too much into the the sort of tentative movements towards payments in Chinese currency for oil. I mean, I think, I think it's certainly something worth watching, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, the significance of the oil trade to the dollar's status as the dominant currency or the, you know, the dominant uh, reserve currency in the global economy, oil has always played an important role in that. You know, going back to the 1970s, the original sort of petrodollar revolution, when the increase in oil prices from the oil shocks of 1973 and 1979 uh, catapulted oil to sort of the forefront uh, uh, in the transformations in global finance and global economy. So there's always been a very, very close relationship between the oil trade and the status of the dollar. But from my view today in 2023, oil just isn't it isn't as important to propping up the dollar globally as it used to be. I mean, when you look at oil as a share of world trade, it's still significant, but it's not nearly as significant as it was 40 years ago. You know, oil, uh, dollars are used in uh, multivarious transactions across different sectors spanning, you know, global industries, global finance. It serves a much more important, much more diverse role than it did 40 years ago. So I think, you know, talks of let's say the Saudis and the Chinese de-dollarizing their oil exchanges or de-dollarizing their energy deals, that's certainly indicative of global economic trends. But I don't think it's a serious threat to the dollar status as the world's most important currency. Right. All right, we're getting some good listener questions. So I want to bring some of these in. Uh, so here's Rod. He asks, how are sanctions and Saudi production changes affecting energy geopolitics? You've been speaking to this. When will alternative energy start to really have an impact on markets and why? Well, this is one of the big questions, right? Is this question of, you know, we're in the midst of an energy transition. We're in the midst of state and non-state actors moving away from fossil fuels, trying to find alternative energy sources from a variety of different interests, right? Whether they're trying to cut costs, whether they're trying to improve their, their energy security, uh, whether they're seriously trying to decarbonize and reduce their carbon emissions. There's a variety of different reasons why we're starting to see a shift towards alternative energies. But the big question for the oil market is, what is that going to do to demand? What is that going to do to price? Uh, there's no consensus right now about where or when peak demand is going to happen. You know, a couple of years ago is when the peak demand debate really started to get going. And the, you know, the, the guesses or the estimates as to when we were going to hit peak oil demand ranged from 
you know, the early 2020s all the way to the 2040s. And that's a debate that's still ongoing. Um, whether we see, you know, we're, we're going to see a decrease, I think, in gasoline consumption as EVs continue to penetrate the global auto market. Um, but, you know, industrial growth or economic growth driven by decarbonization or driven by a desire uh, to move away from a dependence on fossil fuels, that could see an increase in oil consumption. You know, oil isn't just used for gasoline. It's used for, you know, it's an input in practically everything. As we use less gasoline, we might very well need more benzene, more kerosene, more bitumen, more petrochemical feedstock. So the question on whether it's going to have an impact on decreasing global oil demand, uh, it's it's still, you know, it's still very difficult to say when that moment will come. Yeah, that, that gets to a question here from Charles about Iran, which is what happens if the strait is blocked? Is that not too difficult? Sounds like you think the answer is uh, it would be significant. <laughs> I think it would be very significant. Uh, Iran, uh, Iran has the capacity to block the Strait of Hormuz. It does. Uh, through its missile capacity, through its naval power, um, it could do so. How long it could maintain that blockade is a little bit more of an open question. Um, I think it's certain that it would draw an immediate and significant US and GCC response. It would, of course, have a tremendous impact on prices. Um, the big question would be why? Why would Iran choose to block the Strait of Hormuz? What would it feel uh, that, would, that it would have to gain? I mean, Iran is still essentially dependent on oil revenues. It's producing and exporting a lot more oil now than it did a year ago. Uh, thanks to have, It has a willing customer in China who's taking more than a million barrels a day in Iranian oil exports. So it needs the Strait to stay open uh, for its own needs, just as much as it, uh, the rest of the region does. It's also a question that gets back to the normalization, right? Iran sees improved relations with Saudi Arabia and the rest of the, the Gulf as benefiting its interests, benefiting its security. And if you block the Strait of Hormuz, uh, the, you're, you're going to make the rest of the region very, very mad at you very, very quickly. Uh, <laughs> so I think it's less a question of capability and more of a question of willingness and why Iran would be driven to take uh, what would be a very dramatic, very drastic step that would be certain to bring uh, very negative, very deleterious consequences for Iran in the short term. Yeah, uh, we have a question here about the U.S. side of that equation from Kathleen, which is, please discuss the importance of backup energy sources for all critical infrastructure companies and DOD U.S. military entities <laughs> as they incorporate alternative energy sources. And, and I'll, I'll put it in this way, you know, are, are we really prepared right now for a big, you know, cutoff in uh, global oil supplies? What would that look like? Uh, this is a great question. Um, I'm not a military expert. Uh, I can't speak to how well prepared the DOD is for uh, this kind of uh, black swan event, right? Uh, let's keep the we'll keep the focus uh, on a shutoff of the Strait of Hormuz uh, for now. Um, I will say this: you know, 2022 was a watershed moment um, in how we, you know, the global community, not just sort of the think tank or consulting community, but everybody, how we all think about energy security and how geopolitical events, geopolitical shocks affect the price, the availability, uh, and the durability of energy supplies. Uh, the shutoff of the Strait of Hormuz would have an immediate effect on the price of oil. That, that goes without saying. Um, it would have an immediate effect on the availability uh, or the idea of the availability of oil. I think oil would still be available in inventories and stocks. And of course, there are alternative uh, sources of oil, the United States being one of them. Um, but you shut down the Strait of Hormuz and you keep it shut for a prolonged period of time, 
you would start to see oil shortages, right? The Persian Gulf is still, still accounts for at least 20% of global oil supply on any given day. So the impact would be tremendous. How well prepared are we for such an event? Um, I would say probably not very. Uh, again, it sort of depends on how long the strait stays closed. Uh, and that speaks to Iranian military capacity, but it also speaks to you know, how quickly would the United States respond to Iran closing the Strait of Hormuz. And I think given the significance of the threat or given the significance of what uh, this would mean for global oil markets and uh, the global energy economy, I think the US response would be immediate and uh, fairly overwhelming. I think the US would move very quickly to reopen the Strait and would be willing to use military power to do so. All right, let's let's get out of oil for a little bit here and let's talk about what's happening in the rest of the energy industry and the rest of the energy markets as governments are trying to decarbonize and find alternative sources of energy. Um, you wrote a great essay for us with Michael Weber about Japan and its attempts to jumpstart a hydrogen economy. And that has had big implications for Toyota and other car makers who are getting left behind in the EV race, or at least they have been so far. Um, so can you tell us what is going on here? Sure. Um, and I'm, I'm going to start to answer that question by mentioning oil one more time. But I promise that it's, <laughs> yeah, we can't, I promise we can't that it's relevant. Totally leave oil behind. Um, I, I go back, you know, as a historian, I'm always thinking about historical precedent or historical examples. And a historical moment that I go back to quite a lot uh, is uh, 1941. Uh, an American geologist named Everett de Goyer, who's quite significant in the history of oil, um, undertook uh, an exploratory mission to the Middle East to explore the oil fields of Iraq, Iran, Saudi Arabia, to get a sense of you know, what the Middle East would mean for the global oil industry. And again, this is 1941. In 1941, the United States alone accounted for half of global oil production and more than half of global oil consumption. Right? 1941, the United States was still the most important oil producing country in the world. The Middle East was producing relatively little at this time. And de Goyer goes to the Middle East and he writes a report back to the United States. And what he says is this. He says that the center of gravity in the world of global energy has shifted. It has shifted from the Gulf of Mexico to the Persian Gulf. And again, this was long before the Middle East overtook the United States as a region of energy production. It would be years and years before the Middle East produced as much as the United States. But in 1941, de Goyer was calling his shot, if you like. He was looking ahead and saying that we are on the cusp of a transition. And I think we're in something of a similar moment right now, right? Fossil fuels, oil, gas, and coal still amount for, it still account for the majority of global energy consumption. But everybody knows, everybody has acknowledged and is aware that we're at a moment of transition, that the center of gravity has shifted. The question, is in the certainty of where the shift is going. De Goyer knew that it was moving from the Gulf of Mexico to the Persian Gulf. For us, you know, citizens of the world in 2023, the precise movement is a little bit trickier to understand. Where should we be putting our attention? Should we be putting our attention towards electrifying the grid, building as much wind and solar and nuclear and geothermal capacity as possible? Should we be focusing on hydrogen, and the production of clean hydrogen for decarbonizing steel or decarbonizing cement or fertilizer manufacturing? Should we be thinking about oil and gas and coal as, they're still, as they still form an important part of our energy mix? 
So something that uh, Michael Weber and I got, uh, got to in our piece about Japanese EVs is the challenge and the uncertainty that comes with our specific historical moment. We know that a transition is happening and we know that it's going to affect the world. But the problem comes in determining where the attention should be fixed and how we can address every problem to the degree to which it requires our attention, right? This is arguably the largest or one of the largest economic transformations in human history. And we have to do it quickly and we have to do it in a way that ensures emissions fall and the effects of climate change are mitigated. And how we do that is, uh, is a pretty, pretty, pretty profound challenge because the road ahead is filled with uncertainty. Right. Right. That's a great preamble. So, okay. So talk about Japan in this context. Sure. Which, yeah. Made a big effort to, to push hydrogen, uh, particularly for the auto industry. Yeah, no. So, so Japan is a very interesting example. Japan is, you know, one of the world's largest industrial economies. Uh, it's a major emitter. I think it's uh, either the fourth or fifth largest emitter in the world. It's also a major industrial economy, right? Uh, and it has the uh, misfortune, I guess, of relying overwhelmingly on energy imports. And this has been the case going back you know, to the beginning of the 20th century. Japan possesses great resources, but what it lacks are energy resources. It has to import coal, gas, oil, and given the state of the world and given the significance of improving Japanese energy security and decarbonizing, there has been a tremendous push inside Japan for uh, moving the energy transition forward, right? Japan is restarting its nuclear reactors. It's attempting to reduce its oil consumption by increasing the use of EVs. But hydrogen, uh, for uh, a variety of reasons, has become the sort of focus of attention in Japan. Japan wants to become a hydrogen economy. It wants to utilize hydrogen throughout multiple sectors to decarbonize industry, to reduce emissions from household use. You know, it wants to introduce residential fuel cell, residential hydrogen fuel cells uh, as a, a replacement for gas and coal heating. It wants to, the major Japanese automakers about a decade ago decided, you know, the future wasn't electric vehicles. The future was fuel cell vehicles utilizing hydrogen as a fuel source. And they've only very recently decided that that was maybe not the best bet to make, <laughs> that EVs were probably or possibly uh, a, a more profitable road to go down. And they're now trying to shift their attention. But that hasn't changed the overall view in Japan that hydrogen is key to the Japanese energy transition. And the problem there is that hydrogen is still in its early stages. We don't have a global hydrogen supply chain. Uh, there are still lots of problems associated with how to create clean hydrogen versus, uh, if you like, dirty hydrogen or hydrogen that releases large amounts of carbon emissions. Hydrogen requires a lot of energy to produce. It can be difficult to move. Um, and using it for decarbonization or using it to reduce emissions happens to be very case specific. You know, you need to utilize hydrogen in specific ways, whether it's ammonia coal firing in steel manufacturing or, uh, or utilizing it as a source of transportation fuel. You know, it requires different supply chains that, yes, again, still don't really exist. So the hydrogen bet, uh, as we argue in the piece, it looks like it might be a little bit of a bad bet and that Japan could perhaps be uh, uh, better convinced to shift its attention towards uh, the energy transition in other sectors. Um, but at the end of the day, it's still uh, focusing on hydrogen as one of, if not the most important part 
of its energy transition strategy. Right. We, and some of that is happening here in the U.S. too. I mean, so one of the takeaways from this analysis is that it's pretty hard sometimes for governments to, you know, make bets, make investments, decide where markets are headed, right? What do, you, what do you draw from that lesson as, you know, the United States tries this big, similar, uh, you know, industrial policy push? I think the conclusion that we reach in the piece is, is a compelling conclusion, which is that, you know, there are going, you know, one of the points of industrial policy is to try to pick winners and losers, right? Try to find areas where you can allocate capital, where it will be most effective or where it will have the greatest use, the greatest application. Um, part of the problem with industrial policy as an element of climate change policy is that you're not just trying to create economic value. You're not just trying to allocate capital where it will have a positive rate of return or a positive economic impact. You're also trying to reduce carbon emissions. You have to do both. And that can be problematic. And one of our takeaways uh, from the piece is that governments through industrial policy will try to pick winners but it may end up picking a few losers as well. And that might be unavoidable. It might be an aspect of this, uh, this energy transition, this uh, economic transformation, that certain roads that we go down will end up being dead ends, as could be the case with the Japanese bet on hydrogen fuel cell vehicles. Uh, it could be the case with other technologies that at the moment appear very exciting, very attractive, has great potential, but in 20, 30, even 40 years may end up not being worth the investment made. Yeah, you could buy a Toyota fuel cell vehicle in the U.S. And I think there are six fueling stations in the whole country currently. <laughs> yeah, I believe yeah. so. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So you might you could buy it. You might have some trouble driving it. Right. Right. Um, all right. Bring it a very straightforward question here from Terrence that might, might be difficult to answer. Is it likely that raw materials availability can restrict the growth of renewable energy production? Certainly possible. You know, uh, one of the major questions that we consider at Eurasia Group on the energy climate resources team is the question of critical minerals and the availability mm -hmm. of critical minerals for the energy transition. I would say it's one of the largest questions facing the, the energy transition. Uh, the limits to critical mineral access will have an impact on how quickly the energy transition takes place, which is why right now, there's so much interest in increasing upstream production. You know, you have mines opening uh, all over the place to produce lithium with the anticipation that lithium will be one of the most important, if not the most important commodity to the energy transition. So it's certainly possible, uh, but it's a possibility that many are already, uh, you know, taking into consideration as they make plans for the future. You had a great piece in Foreign Affairs with Morgan Bazillion, if I'm remembering correctly, about what the geopolitical dynamics are going to be like as countries try to secure these supply chains. Can you just talk a little bit about that? What, what is the prospect of an OPEC for lithium? What does that look like? Well, it's it's funny because when OPEC, you know, when, when OPEC first sort of exploded on the international scene in the early 1970s with the first uh, oil shock, um, and the famous, you know, Arab oil embargo, which I always correct people, was not the OPEC oil embargo. It was the Arab oil embargo. Um, but OPEC for, you know, uh, it became very important in the early 1970s, and it immediately triggered a response um, among the punditry of the time with concerns that, well, if we see an OPEC for oil, what if there's an OPEC for copper? What if there's an OPEC for, uh, for metals, for key minerals? The expectation was other commodity-producing countries 
other resource producing countries would follow the Saudi lead and would create OPEX to cartelize and control other commodities. And that didn't happen. Part of the reason it didn't happen is that oil is somewhat unique in the sense of how it is produced in the nature of its global pricing structure, uh, in the way that you, know, you produce it and you have to find a market for it immediately. It's not profitable to produce oil in the hopes of future demand. There has to be a close link between supply and demand, which makes it uh, somewhat more conducive to cartelization um, or the operations of an oligopoly, if we want to get very technical about it. Um, but I mean, I think, I think you are starting to see uh, an increase in resource nationalism internationally, some of which is focusing on the issue of critical minerals, but which is, I think, more generally focusing on the issue of energy security. You know, almost every country on Earth was affected uh, in 2022 by the energy shock that came out of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And it's affected not just, you know, consuming countries, not just the EU or Japan or the United States. It's affected countries that rely on energy or commodity production and export, right? Indonesia would be one uh, example, or Chile, countries that are starting to think very carefully about how they want to manage their resources. So while there maybe hasn't been an international movement towards controlling natural resources or critical minerals, on the same scale as OPEC attempts to control oil, you're, cer you're certainly seeing uh, more of a focus nationally on managing resources with the expectation that they will become more important as the energy transition unfolds. Yeah, I think, I think we've got time for about one more question here. I wanna just give it to the audience. They've been asking some great questions. Um, this is from, from Rick. Um, what is the role of natural gas in our energy future? Nice broad question for you. <laughs> oh, great question. Um, I would say a big one. Um, natural gas is, you know, it's a significant contributor to global energy consumption. It's used not just for electricity, but for, for heating. Um, it's, a, it, it's an important uh, feedstock in various industrial or agricultural endeavors. Um, so there's, there's going to be increasing demand for natural gas. Um, the United States, I mean, one of the larger, one of the big reasons why U.S. emissions fell um, over the course of about a decade was because natural gas displaced coal. We started using a lot less coal and we started using a lot more natural gas and renewables uh, to supply our electricity. Um, how important it is to the future of sort of global energy consumption um, is a thorny question or a thornier question now that we're looking to 2022 in the rear view. I mean, one of the bigger stories of last year, it wasn't the fact that oil prices went up to $120 a barrel. It was the fact that the price of natural gas exploded, right? The price of liquefied natural gas traded globally uh, went up to an extraordinary degree. Um, or local markets, for instance, in, in the, the EU, the price of natural gas reached uh, historic proportions. So what last year I think uh, illustrated was that natural gas, while you know, very useful, um, very applicable, uh, very important, uh, has become somewhat more volatile. And it gets back to the question of energy security, that countries and consumers are going to be much more conscious of protecting themselves against future shocks um, and may attempt to move away from depending on sources that appear to be more volatile. Um, so the degree to which that affects natural gas as an energy source moving forward, I think it's still, still a little bit too early to say. Um, but given how volatile you know, the LNG market was in 2022, I think it, it, it has uh, triggered something of a backlash and an interest in engaging in different sources in order to improve energy security and the reliability of energy supplies in the future. Got it. 
All right, Greg, it's been great fun talking to you, but we will have to leave it here. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Matt. It was a pleasure. Thank you to our audience, too, for tuning in. Please join us again on Monday. My colleagues, Lauren Rublin and Ben Levison, will have a discussion on the outlook for financial markets, industry sectors, and individual stocks. Thank you and have a great day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.